0: Hello and welcome to Talking U Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. Now just a reminder that if you're thinking of applying for the EBO your retina exam time is running out uh, at the time of recording of this podcast uh, there's only a couple of weeks left for you to get your stuff together March 14th is the closing date but as we said in the last podcast you need supporting documentation such as uh, photographs and reference letters and other information so all of that information is on the Uretina website uretina.org but make sure you don't leave it to the last minute to apply or you won't be able to get that sort of stuff together in time. Oh, and on February 28th, we'll have an educational webinar from the Uretina Myopia section, chaired by Ramin Taddeoni and Caroline Claver. The title is Myopia Damage Control. You'll find details on the Uretina website. All right, for this episode's discussion, it's time to welcome back Alistair Laidlaw, Uretina's president and consultant vitreoretinal retinal surgeon of Guys and St. Thomas NHS Foundation Trust in the UK. He's going to be interviewing David Steele, who is also of NHS Trust and at the University of Newcastle, about macular holes and insights that he's gleaned from individual patient data and how it might inform decision making in dealing with macular holes. Alistair, uh, it's great to have you back in the podcast. I hope you're well. I am very much indeed. uh, Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, It's a great pleasure
1: to welcome David Steele this evening, who is a friend and colleague uh, from the north of England. David and I do a lot of things together And we thought that we might do a talking to each other podcast on things that have interested us uh, that we and other people have been doing recently. So um, thank you very much for coming along, David.
2: Great. Thanks, Alistair. No, good evening to you.
1: So I'll start off. You've been doing some really fascinating stuff, um, both yourself and with Naomi Lewis uh, in Belfast on um, individual patient data in macular holes in particular. And that really is giving us a lot of information on what evidence there is uh, to back up what we want to do on what is after all one of our commonest stops
2: yeah no it, it, it all started because a, a long time ago Naomi did an indip- individual participant data analysis I'll come back to what that is in a minute on ILM peeling in macular holes. So she did an initial randomized study and there was three other randomized studies done on the same subject. so she got the individual participant data from all four studies. And published a what's known as an IPD analysis uh, and to definitively show that ILM peeling improves closure in macular holes and improves, therefore, by default um, visual acuity outcomes. So um, yeah, and during lockdown, I'd had a proposal in to look at the effect of symptom duration on macular holes. And um, as with a lot of applications, um, I wasn't successful in getting in getting RCT funding. So we thought, what? Well, how else can we answer the question? So we thought one way of doing it would be to look at randomized studies that have been published on macular holes with high-quality data by default, because they've been done uh, in in an
1: RCTs. They have to be yeah, yeah. high yeah. quality.
2: Yep. So they've had proper visual acuities done. They've had um, set um, you know fixed time intervals between study endpoints and so on. And then we we did a, a systematic review of study RCTs on macular holes that also recorded symptom duration and we we managed to get find 20 studies we got data on 12 of those RCTs and they were able to analyze the effect of symptom duration. Can I just Um, butt in there David? Yeah.
1: So when you say you got um, data from from a number of those RCTs is that the individual data on each patient that was included rather than the sort of summaries that we see in the papers?
2: That's right yeah so we so we wrote to the authors of those papers and asked if they'd very kindly collaborate with us to give us their individual participant data. So we had yeah. so we had we you know we, we didn't just get the outcome data, we didn't just get visual acuity and closure, but we also got all the variables such as age, sex, and um, type of dyes used, whether they were fake pre and post op so we could we could take into account the effect of the cataract confounder. Uh, what, what gas they use, whether they use face-down positioning, all these variables, so we can include them in a, in, a, in a multi-level logistic regression model. Does this mean that it's better than a meta-analysis? Yes. So you can, actually, you, can, you can actually take into account all the other variables that possibly vary between different RCTs. So even an RCT, supposing you have an RCT on face-down positioning, for example, they may have used different gases. Yes. And unless you actually, you know, so you, so you can actually take into account those variables. And some RCTs, of course, use different gases and different patients with different size holes. And you can, you can take into account all these variables and, and to account for their effect on the outcome. We, that was, we'll, we'll maybe come to in a minute what we found from that initial IPD, but um it did throw up a couple of interesting other things other than just curation. yeah. <laughs> so in summary, because um, we haven't got all the evening,
1: unfortunately, because we you and I can just chat away for hours about these things. Um, in summary, what are the sort of the things okay. that we know about about size, about posturing, about use of flaps, different gases and so on. Have you been able to really give people a menu, uh, an evidence-based menu on what to do?
2: Well, that's the aim. Uh, So we're we're, at the moment, we're we're writing guidelines on macular holes in collaboration with UREtina, the College of Ophthalmologists in in, in the UK, as well as the ASRS and the Canadian Retina Society. But we published our IPD analysis on duration and macula holes, which essentially shows that separate from an increase in size in macula hole with time, you also get a reduction in closure rate and visual acuity outcome just based on the symptom duration. So even if the macula hole gets bigger, you also get a separate effect of chronicity of the macular hole. So it's a double whammy. It's a double whammy. So if the hole gets bigger, that's one side of it, but it also yep. you've also got the chronicity effect as well. Yep.
1: Exactly. And why is that happening? Is that the photoreceptors degenerating um,
2: Yes' is it, is it on
1: closure or acuity or both
2: It's both yeah, so okay. it, i mean the, the effect isn't huge. it's about one e t. letter per two months' duration. but if you actually combine that with the effect on holes getting bigger with time, especially short recent onset holes it can you know it can it can affect your outcomes by three or four hundred percent on closure, for example um, wow. so it's quite important yeah.
1: I've heard someone say that holes are only going one way, and you really should get on with them.
2: I think well, there's a lot to. That's absolutely right, of course. But um, you know, we both work in a um, you know public health system, which um, you know we haven't got the ability to do things immediately. We have lots of patients on our waiting list. Sure. And what triggered this was in some parts of the country the waiting lists for maculars were very long, and so because it was thought they were completely routine, but then then they're clearly not, so they need to have some priority. But exactly how you order your priority with different indications is tricky. Yeah,
1: that's a different a different talk for different evening, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so posture that's a really contentious issue, isn't it?
2: Yes, and so posture is of great interest at the moment because we're so we're, we're doing four other IPDs at the moment, but. So one of the ones is on posturing and face down positioning after macular hole surgery. So what we recommend to our patients to do after surgery, because of course, we can't tell what they're going to do, but we can recommend. So we're looking at the effect of, and so you might say, why do we need to do that? Because there's been three systematic reviews, meta-analysis has carried out on this in the last year, including one which I took part in with, with, led by Varun Chowdhury from McMaster. So Varun found there was no effect of face down positioning in terms of closure. It was only just missed out on significance. The p-value, I think, was 0.07. Any case, two other systematic reviews have found an effect, a small effect. And the PIM study, which we both took part in, which was led by, by our friend Jim Brainbridge, Jim found that face-down positioning was not non-inferior what does not, that mean not non-inferior i'm confused now <laughs> yes so it wasn't a superiority study so he yeah. <laughs> wouldn't have managed to get superiority in any case yeah but non-inferiority is when you look for the a fact that the, 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 it's a halfway house i suppose you could think of it between a superiority study and an inferiority study or sorry an equivalent study so you all we can say is it's within the boundaries that we, that were set in the study, which was a 10% difference in outcomes. We couldn't prove a definitive difference in that within that 10% boundary. But I, th- I think
1: it's, isn't it fair to say that most studies have shown a trend mm-hmm. that with bigger holes, face-down positioning is beneficial. That's come out in a couple of studies. We had the French study from, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Jim's study, there's a definite Trend towards it, and indeed, he, he occasionally would show a number needed to treat figure about the effectiveness of uh, the relative effectiveness of face down positioning.
2: Yes, and that's exactly what triggered us to do the uh, the IPD analysis, which we're doing at the moment. So there's almost certainly a size criteria where it becomes more important with size of the the hole, and you can't. With published data, you can't analyze for that effect. But having the IPD, where we have all the minimal linear diameters of all the holes, will hopefully be able to say, well, okay, if you get to a hole of, say, it, I, I suspect it will be about 500 microns, yep. where yeah. it will start become clinically important to posture, and we'll be able to give some guidance on that. And the other really interesting thing about posturing, of course, is that, The systematic review and meta-analyses have suggested, as did the PIM study, have suggested that face-down positioning gives you a visual acuity advantage.
1: Now, David, can I cut in there again? Because I'm never quite sure when I read these papers as to whether the face-down positioning gives you an acuity advantage because in bigger holes, you've got a slightly greater closure rate and therefore... Your group that close are going to do better than your group that don't close in terms of acuity. So, is it that that we're seeing, or may there actually, as you said before, with size and time, be a, an extra factor?
2: No, that's, and that's again the second driver for the IPD analysis is that exact question. So this, this it's difficult, isn't it? So some holes don't close first time, but sometimes they get they have revision surgery before the primary outcome of the, the initial RCT. So they're closed at the, at the, at the, the, the primary outcome endpoint. point. So you don't know whether they're closed or open. But we suspect that if you have a closed hole oh, doesn't doesn't close primarily, it'll have a worse outcome. But in any case, we don't know the answer to that question. But by getting the ID, we can examine that exact question. Is it just the posturing? So if you have primary closure, here's the question. If you get primary closure and you posture, do you get a better visual outcome? And that's what I want to know the answer to. I think that's a really good question. So tell me, why does
1: posturing help? Because we know from lots of people's work that if you've got a hole, an eye that's more than about two thirds full of gas, you've actually covered that hole when you're in the upright position and you're not getting an increased effect at the top of the eye compared to halfway down the eye. So why do we think that that posturing might have this incremental benefit, particularly in the bigger holes?
2: Well, I don't know, but there's two possibilities. I guess I can think of one is that you know we when we tell people to be face forwards they're actually not face forward; they're leaning slouching back in their seats, and so then it, you know the hull size might have some effect, and sorry, the gas size might have some effect. And the second thing is you may have a tiny effect from the force you generate by going face down, the buoyant force of gas mm-hmm. um, on the hull, but that's only tiny; it's only like two millimeters of mercury or something like that. So if, even if that effect. isn't it. I must
1: say, I'd I'd like to throw in a third, and that is actually that face down is a surrogate for staying still. Mm. Um, And particularly, if if you think about a Paris goblet of wine, you half fill it with water and you walk around the room, that will, and these are also technical terms, that will slosh and splash. Um, And every time you slosh or splash, you'll uncover the hole. So I've got a suspicion, and again, and you know, this is an unproven suspicion, that the eyes that get a really good gas fill probably aren't going to benefit much from face-down posturing. And it's the patients who um, haven't got a great gas fill who, when you put them face-down, you ensure continued contact. And that may explain why you're getting relatively small effects. Now, this is complete label or hypothesis rather than proven fact, but it's it kind of fits with the idea that there must be some benefit and it's not more buoyant at the top of the bubble than at the bottom.
2: Yeah, no, and also it'd be, I mean, I think that's, I still tell people to posture for a day and part of it is completely, as you say, but and I tell them to stay in the house for a week and I I think this is all, part of it (laughs) okay so have you got anything on gas Uh, because
1: we're all um we're all a bit scared of using sf6 because it goes away too soon or they might have to face down position but then other people have done trials using using air and other people some people have just used um use c3f8 routinely so any evidence on it
2: so we did a systematic review and meta-analysis not with ipd um, there's only there's only two. Well, there's now three RCTs on gas. So to cut a long story short, the RCTs have not shown any difference between SF6 and C3F8. But of course, they are confounded by the face down positioning. So you'd imagine face down positioning would be more important in a short acting bubble. Yeah. So the trials that compare SF6 to C3 to C3F8 that's fair enough. But if you then to look at some of these intermediate questions, whether you position face down or you don't position face down. You know, if if one trial did face down position and the other trial didn't, you you know, you might get this different effect. But as far as we can gather at the moment, we can't see a difference between SF6 and C3F8 or C2F6 for that matter. And even if you face down position or don't face down positioning, it's different with air. Air is really interesting. There was a great Norwegian RCT published on this recently, where they did air without face down positioning, so no no specific face down positioning, and they found that it was again that uh, this terrible word air was was not non-inferior to SF six if it was less than four hundred microns. In other words, they they couldn't prove that it wasn't non-inferior. So the difference in outcomes was about ninety percent, ninety seven percent closure for SF six and about ninety percent for air. So, so perhaps so-
1: a perhaps a small effect, but not not scientifically proven
2: yeah so that so the, the next question of course is what about in holes less than 250 microns And there's another yeah. rct going on and that with there you know and if you did a day down a day of face down positioning what would be the effect? but um, you know <laughs> there's lots of different questions because <laughs> most holes close quite early if they're going to don't they yes i mean you'd, i think it's been shown in several claus
1: i think did had a, a very clever upside down oct scanner and he had people posturing face down until the hole closed he was scanning through the gas and i think most holes were closing within
2: 48 72 hours
1: yeah um, yes, and many yes.
2: overnight um yeah so lots of other things also we looked at we, we were looking at there's lots of variants of ilm peeling um so ilm flaps size of the ilm peel um, so we're doing ipds on both those aspects at the moment and um, the interesting thing about ilm flaps is do they I think most people strongly believe that they improve closure, but do they have any effect on visual acuity outcomes? Certainly in the past, we were very suspicious
1: that, um, although the technique's obviously changed, hasn't it? Because it used to be that you stuffed the hole with ILMs, crumpled it up and pushed it in, Um, probably damaged a lot of adjacent photoreceptors in doing it. Now it's kind of being laid over as an occlusive membrane. So that's a definite change in, in the technique. But certainly in the past, it, it did appear that vision wasn't as good as you might expect uh, in people with, with stuffing of ALM in the
2: hole. So, um, yeah, so there's I guess you can divide them into you know stuffing techniques, single layer techniques. And so we're, we've got three arms, peeling, single layer and stuffing. And um, seeing if there is an effect on vision, because some studies, the RCTs that have been published so far haven't found any detrimental effect on visual acuity. But there has been a couple of interesting retrospective studies recently, which have shown some benefit even in small holes. So, so what's your threshold for an ILM flap, Alistair? What when do you? When do you, what do you
1: do? <laughs> hey, you've st- you've stolen my question. That's very, very clever. So, look, shall I give you my recipe for macular hole surgery, and then you can tell me where you are wrong? So I pretty much routinely do fake phacovitrectomy because there's 80 odd percent over two years will develop secondary cataract. And I haven't seen much evidence that doing cataract surgery at the same time results in a worse outcome. Um, some people are concerned about that. I know so I'll do that. I peel the ILM in, well, so far I've been peeling the ILM in every case, but I think under 250 microns, there might be a case in not doing it because whilst ILM peeling is fun, it's not a free hit. Um, you get little paracentral scotomata, you might get a little um <clears throat> we know about the Donful, whether that's the, the sort of corrugation, whether that is visually significant or not, but splashdowns are not unheard of. Damage to the, the vasculature uh and to the retina when 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 you're trying to particularly induce the, the the first flap, I think is is quite a problem. Uh and so I I try and um be as gentle as possible. But up to 500, I peel the ILM and remove it. I don't do any foveal sparing as yet, but I, I know that that's something that's considered to be potentially beneficial. Over 500 microns, I will do a flap. Now, over, um, under 500 microns, I tell people that there's really no evidence that if they can't or won't posture, that they will be worse off. And people over fight, with a hole over 500 microns. I say, look, there is some benefit, evidence of benefit, but you've got to be realistic. Depending on the size, it might be 10 or 15 people who need to posture in order for one more hole to close. So I'm very, um, very tolerant with patients. And if they um, if they can't or won't posture face down, it's not a sort of fear of God. Your hole is not going to close. I, I try and be as informed as possible. In terms of gas, I use SF six for small holes, and completely illogically, uh, I use C two F six for bigger holes, even though they're the ones that's going to be postured. So, some of this is and practice. Uh, does that fit in with what you do?
2: Well, and I don't if-
1: do I don't do three hundred and sixty laser.
2: No, no. Uh, well, as, as with many things, you've got very similar practice to, to me. <laughs> I do basically the same. I think the five hundred micron, you know, threshold is based on good data, we know that the macular holes close, 97% close if it's 500 microns or, or smaller. And then at 500 microns, it goes down to around about 90%. So that's that's a logical place to start doing ILM flaps. The really other, Another interesting thing about ILM flaps, it almost certainly reduces your benefit from posturing. So if you if there is a benefit in large holes, a small one in posturing, it possibly disappears if you do an ILM flap. So um the landmark first study by Professor Noroki used air um for their ILM flaps and didn't posture, I think, and then and they got high closure rates. So um well, I think I think that, that kind of fits in with the hypothesis of why
1: holes close. And there is clearly some wound healing involved in, in bigger holes, but a lot of the time it's about uh, I think, and I think there's some evidence and circumstantial and so on to back it up. It's about producing an occlusive membrane over the hole to allow the uh, the fluid in there to pump out and perhaps to uninvert or unevert the whole edges. Now, if you've got a deficit, so you can sort of flip the hole down, and that may be enough to oppose the foveal edges. Um, and sometimes you then need to have a little bit of a contractile element in bigger holes or atrophic holes in which to uh, to pull it together. But the occlusive membrane, I think that's at least part of the effect of, um, of platelet concentrate because I've used them a bit in redo holes. And the ones that work, you do see a, a, a sort of fibrin occlusive membrane over the hole the next day and we look at other things as ilm but people have used capsule people have used uh, amniotic membrane all these things are mm-hmm. um you know are, are physically plugging uh, and occluding or physically occluding uh, the hole and perhaps allowing closure that way so yeah i, th- I, th- I think that kind of fits even if it's not proven
2: Yes, no, I mean I think ILM, ILM flaps certainly in large hills in my in my sort of practice is is a, is a worthwhile thing to do. And um, um and, you know it may well be the case. I mean theres there's the evidence for platelets is, and autology serum is, is limited. Um so yes. I can't really comment on that, but it's, it sounds logical. Um, um the other thing is ILM peel size um we're doing an ipd on that at the moment there's five rcts on island peel size and i think the long and short of that is if you have larger holes they do better with a larger peel which again is a bit, a bit intuitive but it stands nice
1: to, to reason doesn't it
2: find the threshold would be quite <laughs> interesting yes. uh, and um i mean you could say why don't why don't you just do a flap but you know as we've talked about flaps take longer more light exposure more potential pickup point trauma you know, and then you know, it may be that a simple ILM peel but a larger one is a, is, a, is a better gambit for certain size cells, maybe between 500 and 600 microns, for example. We should actually just do large peels but not flaps and only do flaps at 600. But, um, yeah, it's uh, unknown for sure yet at the moment. So, Alistair, do you, do you, what, what do you think about the work that's been done recently on, on VCR, vitreous cortex remnants, uh, in the and their role in causing redetachment in retinal in detachments?
1: Well, it's fascinating. Um, I think we've got to give all credit to this to a guy called Kuhn van Overdam, um, who's from Rotterdam. And Kuhn, for a long time, was noticing that people with um, what we called a PVD didn't actually have a complete PVD and that there was vitreous cortex left on the retina. And several years ago, Kuhn started routinely staining uh, all eyes with retinal detachment for this vitreous. And you'll often see a fine mesh vitreous on the retinal surface even though you think uh, that it's all come away well we this sort of fits because we know that you need some vitreous cortex left on the um on the surface of the retina to get an epiretinal membrane we know that stage four holes have often got um epiretinal membrane and vitreous cortex around them so we know that there's uh vitreous gysis, and incomplete separation of the hyalid. So what Kuhn's done, um, he's plugged away at this and he's looked A at the prevalence of these remnants and B at the effectiveness in terms of reducing retinal detachment failure rates of attempting to remove this these remnants. So he's been putting um, diluted triamcinolone in the eye Uh, and staining the retina and looking for this and then he started off with a um uh, a little scraper that was made a little brush that was made out of a cellulose sponge Um, but i think that increasingly people are moving on to devices like the um the finesse flex loop that alcon do i've no vested interest in that. And other devices, I think the diamond dusted scraper might be used as well. I must say, I'm not overly fond of that device. So what Kuhn's done, uh, he hasn't done a trial. And Kuhn's also a meticulous, highly experienced surgeon. And he does a quite involved retinal detachment repair. So he puts a chandelier in everyone, he shaves the vitreous base in everyone and he'll shallow the AC in order to do a good vitreous base shave in, um, in fake eyes. He'll stain for the, um, for the vitreous cortex remnants and remove them uh, if he can. He'll put in heavy liquid. Uh, the heavy liquid is to assist with the, the shaving and the search. Um, he'll search around. He'll laser. I think Kuhn will do 360 laser, having marked all breaks. And then he'll do a fluid air exchange uh, and go to gas. So different areas of the world do retinal detachment repairs in very different ways. And that's a much more involved procedure than, say, the standard British operation. But what Kuhn has shown with that combination of factors is very high success rates these are eyes that don't have pvr but he's been getting success rates of 95 plus percent so he started it he then did a multi multi-surgeon series from rostam then other people in his sort of social group uh, and sphere of influence joined in like mark veconier and so on then other people uh including stan rizzo have published on this showing very high primary success rates and probably higher than most of us would get in these sorts of eyes, although no randomized trial. Part of the drive for this was that he, um, he'd noticed that when you went into a re-detachment, you could almost always peel um, this posterior hyaloid off. So there is this suggestion, which is noisy at the moment, uh, but, confirmed by other people that there may be a benefit to doing this now of course there is a risk you can damage the retina doing it it's going to take more time there's going to be a learning curve in doing it interestingly a colleague of ours and this i think is unpublished data a colleague of ours from lebanon called alex Assi, who's a very uh, inquiring individual he looked for this uh, but didn't do anything about it And he had a reasonable number of eyes. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a decent number of eyes with a respectable failure rate for a a series. And he didn't find an association in terms of failure with um, uh, either the presence of this or the absence of it. So I don't think it's quite as clear cut as um, some of the proponents would would like us to believe.
2: What do you do at the moment then? Have you you adopted the technique or are you you sitting on the fence and doing your standard um uk uh, british uh, vitrectomy how long have you got um,
1: not long <laughs> first, <is the> <laughs> I'd, I'd love
2: to improve the
1: results i think that doing a more involved vitrectomy may actually be beneficial uh so i think the vitreous space shaving and so on may may actually help in terms of finding breaks uh and i think it would be very interesting to do that and it this is somewhere where the Beaver's database, where we have this database of now about 8,000 retinal detachments.
2: 14,000.
1: I've underestimated. Um, 14,000 retinal detachments. So it's quite easy to get a historic, very closely matched control group for any study that you want to do. And I think it would be well worthwhile a group of surgeons actually adopting this and doing surgeon-grade and clinical characteristic matched uh, comparisons of this technique. Uh, and perhaps other things like um we've seen from the Vit-Buckles studies and so on, um the pro studies, that there may be a benefit in um in more complicated retinal detection. Again, we now know how to define those of putting an encirclement on at the time of surgery, rather than again the very straightforward, quite quick, one size fits all uh, operation that we tend to have relied on for the last 10, 15, 20 years
2: yeah and no, i think there's a, a huge role um in you know certain databases as opposed to incredibly expensive rcts in answering some of these unanswered questions in the future to to so we can actually ask more questions but at a lower cost so um well i think alistair we've um, we've run out of time so um what so, we can't uh, <laughs> have we've only <laughs> just started david <laughs> Yes, all good things have to come to an end, I guess. But uh, but (laughs) thank you very much for that uh, interesting discussion on both macular holes and detachments. Brilliant. And thank you, David. And thank you, Jonathan.
0: Well, Alistair and David, I have to say, I found that really interesting uh, as a non-surgeon to hear about how posturing can affect the repair of macular holes. Really, really fascinating stuff. Uh, Well, that's it from this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an idea for the podcast, do let us know, podcast at uretina.org. We'll be back with more Talking Uretina in your podcast feed in a couple of weeks. I'm Jonathan McRae, and I'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.